All right, let's go Psalm chapter 80. Psalm 80. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen uh, when we get to that time uh, as, we're, as we're going through this. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to actually fix that. Uh, we like giving Bibles away around here. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And so we want you to know God. We want your life to be shaped by him, defined by him, valued by him, all those things. And, and so if the Bible is going to be what he uses to get you there it's advantageous for us. It's smart and calculating for us to put Bibles in people's hands and you know, come up with creative ways for people to, to be reading them. Um, so Psalm chapter 80. Um, we shut down our, uh, our, uh, our First Corinthians series uh, just because of the way the, the calendar fell and all that kind of stuff. We wanted to start chapter 5 coming into the new year, all those kinds of things. And, uh, and so we had this little hole uh, in our in our preaching calendar, because uh, we got some special plans for next week, and we'll start Advent stuff uh, the week after that. Uh, and so uh, we've already mentioned it this morning, but we've mentioned it over and over again for the last several months now. But our church is going through the Psalms together, uh, and so however we get there, most of it's going to play out with us just kind of reading it publicly uh, in our public reading times. But uh, we've committed to going through all 150 Psalms, uh, and so uh, I think God has blessed it so far. But one of the one of the unique things that it's done for us is actually create this reservoir, this library of things that we can run to uh, whenever we have this weird hole in the preaching calendar. And so uh, we've committed to, to looking at the Psalms together when we have these moments. And, and not only do I think that God has blessed that so far, but I think it's also, it's also created a wonderful opportunity for us, and, or at least for myself, to, to lean more heavily on something that I don't always run to. All right, maybe you're like me. Um, I don't, I don't run to the Psalms when, whenever I'm having a bad day. It's not what I, it's not what I cling to. It's not, not what gives me comfort. It's not that the Psalms are bad. I don't look at them as, as a, as a problem. It's just not what I. It's not the warm blanket that I want in, in those moments. Just between you and me and the internet, the Psalms are not the place where I, I run to when life is hard. I tend to be more cerebral. I tend to be more uh, to want logical flow and a, and a list of action items. Are you like that? Maybe some of you are, maybe some of you very much aren't, but I'm definitely like that. Uh, the Psalms just don't really care, though, about giving you those things. It's not what they're trying to do. That, it's not that logic isn't there, it's just, it's just on the back burner for the Psalms. It's, they're not aiming for logical flow, and they're certainly not aiming for a list of action items. The Psalms instead are emotion-driven. They're emotion-driven. They're, they're filled with imagery that's, that's intending and trying to evoke something in you. And, and those emotions, man, they can be all over the place sometimes. Like, we read an imprecatory psalm this morning. Like, that's not, that's not one of the fun ones. That's not one of the ones that's going to get a bunch of people in the seats like, go, let's go check out this church. The, the, the psalms are all over the place emotionally and and many of them have these grand sweeps between high and low, sometimes even within the same psalm, sometimes even within the same stanza of a psalm. It seems to be on top of the mountain in one moment and then down in the valley in the next. And, and so that, that, that's just kind of what the psalms are. And if you're the more cold, calculating type of personality, that might be a great source of frustration for you. Or at least it is for me, like you're not sure if the psalmist needs a hug or a Xanax or, or a high five or whatever after you're done reading. But whatever it is, you just want them over there, right? And so if you're the more cold, calculating type, like, like that, that may be a great source of frustration for you. But if you're more of the wear your heart on the sleeve type, you probably see the psalmist as a dear friend. You love those guys. 
You want to hang out with those guys. You want to you go grab a cup of tea or coffee with those guys because they get you, right? But whether you're the emotive type or not, or whether you respond well to that kind of writing or you don't, I, I, I've got a theory. And my theory is this. I, I think they're outbursts that we can identify with. The psalmists, they lean into the outburst. That's, that's their angle. And, I, and I, my theory is, is that whether you act on that outburst or not, you understand that outburst. You get it. It, it. Even if you tend to see life through all of the cerebral filter, I have no doubt that every one of us has moments where we look at the Psalms and we go, oh yeah, oh yeah, that, that was Thursday for me. I, I get that. I know exactly what that feels like. Even if you force it to remain internal, even I think we all have moments where we want something like that to explode out of us. We may suppress it. We may squash it down but it's there. We may try our best to hide it. We all have moments where we're not sure which way is up and we feel like crying out, right? Or, or is my theory way off base? It's a good theory. See, even when everybody believes that we've, when everybody outside of us believes that we've got it all put together, I'm certain, absolutely certain, that we are filled with moments that swing wildly between chaos and delight just like the psalmists. And it may only ever be an internal monologue for you, but you get it. See, love them or hate them, the psalms, they're real. They're genuine. The psalm writers invite you into experiencing the struggle and the heart and the emotions and the failures of God's people as they lived and if we're honest, it's not hard at all for us to line our lives up with theirs and go, oh yeah, I can relate. I know exactly what's, what that's like. There's a lot of similarities between us and them. So while the Psalms might just be hard to navigate during our more put-together moments, uh, my argument is this. I, I think disciplining ourselves to press deeply here can be a great benefit to us during our less put-together moments. Sound good? You ready to dig into Psalm 80? All right, so we're going to start with what we call the superscript. Uh, some of your translations treat that as verse 1. Uh, some translations, like the ESV that we're reading out this morning, uh, they separate that out. Uh, in our, our, uh, our presentation software, they're not able to deal with superscripts, and so they include it in verse 1. And so if you're watching on the screen, it'll say verse 1. If you have a physical copy, it'll say the superscript. Either way, it's a part of the original text, all right? So superscript, let's read it together. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. So there's a ton of information in there, right? Three little descriptive sentences there. And so if, uh, if you've been here as we've kind of walked our way in and out of the Psalter over the last several months, then, then you know that, that each of those little statements carries actually a lot of weight and stuff we've already covered already. For starters, we see who the psalm is addressed to, right? Who's it addressed to? The choir master. In other translations, like the King James, uh, they're called the chief musician, all right? Uh, it, it's a title for uh, the leader of the music in the tabernacle and then later on in, in the temple. And, and all the psalms, obviously, are, are collected together. They're intended to be sung corporately. That's why they've been bound together in this thing that we call the psalms or this thing that we call the psalter. So all of them have the intent of being sung together. That's why it made it into the hymn book, if you want to call it that. But, and so... 
But about a third of the psalms are titled or addressed to whoever this choir master figure is. And so the argument that we've been making as we've been studying the psalms together is that, um, that, that, that some of the psalms just kind of made their way into the Psalter. Like somebody wrote a psalm and people liked it and they started singing it and they were like, yeah, let's add that one to the repertoire. All right? And so that's kind of how a lot of the psalms just kind of made their way into the collection that the congregation sang. Somebody wrote a song, people liked it, and it got included in the list. But then there are other songs, and those songs were written specifically with the congregation in mind. In other words, they were written for the purpose of God's people singing together in worship. A songwriter sat down and they said, hey, you know what, I think God's people need to sing this so they wrote into, into song form. So whenever you see the choir master addressed in the psalm, in a psalm, it, I think it ought to perk our ears up just a little bit. It's, it's not that the other songs aren't good. It's not like the other songs uh, uh, don't have a congregational mindset. It's, it's, but they're, they're merely the, emotional, the emotion of a single individual. These psalms carry a corporate reality. God's people are walking through a moment together. There, there's a congregational experience, and there's an equally important congregational response. That's what's going on in this psalm. So we need to see this as a, as a corporate identity. We need to see this as, as, a, as a group activity that God's people were participating in and experiencing together. But what else do we learn in the superscript? Not only is it, do we know it's addressed to the choir master, but we also see next that it's according to lilies, which sounds very poetic and cute, right? Sounds like a Bath and Body Works soap. This is another thing we've already learned about, right? Other translations, again, notably the King James, uh, will just transliterate the Hebrew there. Shoshanim, all right, if you've got one of those copies. And, and that could theoretically be a Hebrew name. It, that one would be kind of weird, but it, it, would, it would, could be used as a Hebrew name. And, and so some argue that, that the psalm writer here is identifying the name of the choir master. We, we saw this when we looked at Psalm 57 together, right? According to Do Not Destroy. It was a couple months ago or a few months ago, but we, that's what we talked about. We also saw it in Psalm 56 when it, was, when it was addressed to According to Dove on Far Off Terebinths, which doesn't sound like a soap at all. That sounds more like a candle. All right? Psalm 22, we're told, is according to the doe of the dawn. And so what's going on then? All right? uh, well, we think that these are already established tunes. Already established tunes. In other words, the psalm writers, well, this, these psalms were, were, were written to go along with a popular tune, that was that, a song that was already known and familiar to not only the congregation, but to the musicians responsible for playing it, right? It would almost be, hypothetically, like, like somebody wrote a song about all glory being the Christ and then setting it to the tune of a song that we sing often on New Year's Eve, right? Who would ever do such a, a weird thing like that? So, We've, we've learned who the psalm is addressed to. We've learned what the tune is. We're, we're told after that that it's a testimony, right? We could call it a solemn word. Now, who's it written by? What does it say? I'm told it's from Asaph, which, believe it or not, actually creates a big old long list of debate. Um, why? Well, because Asaph was a real person. We can point to a place in the Bible where we're told about a really important and influential Asaph. And that Asaph is actually a songwriter. Uh, in First Chronicles 6, I think it is, uh, he's mentioned several times there, and he's mentioned several times throughout the rest of Second Chronicles and even into Second Chronicles. Right? Uh, he, he was a member of David's court. We're told that he's a prominent singer and a musician. And so 
awesome. We know who Asaph is, right? Why is that an issue? Well, because there are a bunch of things in this psalm which would indicate to us that it's referencing a situation that happened a couple hundred years after Asaph was alive. Probably during or just before the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria. All throughout the psalm that we're about to read, we go, oh yeah, that's probably about the northern kingdom falling. Oh yeah, that's probably about Assyria coming in. Oh yeah, that, that's, that's when God's people in the north uh, finally fell. And that happens at least 200 years after Asaph's dead. And so either, either we have some other second guy named Asaph, or we have someone writing under Asaph's name, there's also a really interesting third option. In 2 Chronicles 29, long after Asaph is dead and gone, he's described not only as a singer, but as a seer. In other words, the Bible calls him a prophet. And so it's possible, possible that during Asaph's life, God allowed him to see the coming divide of the kingdom, and then also the downfall of the north. And if that's so, then that means that he wrote Psalm 80 to prepare the hearts of God's people for that coming day. He saw disaster on the horizon. He sees a day far out in the future when the congregation will need to remember the song that they've been singing for generations. So you ready to look at what he wrote? Verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Verse 3, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Okay, so right out of the gate, we, we learn here that this isn't, this isn't a happy moment, right? They're not celebrating anything here. This, this isn't a time of joy. God's people are in pain in this moment. They're, they're in pain right now. And in the middle of this pain, they feel like God is far off and unresponsive. And I'm sure no one else in here has ever had a moment where they thought that, right? Your world's falling apart around you. Everything is crumbling under your feet and you cry out to God and it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I'm sure that's never happened for a single one of you. Am I the only one? Whether because of the circumstances swirling around you or... Or maybe it's just the natural result of your own sin and stupidity. Whatever it is, you found yourself in a moment when it seemed like the chasm between you and God got bigger. Unbridgeable. So the voice that Asaph gives to the congregation here, it calls out to God to save them. It pleads with him to bend low, to stoop his ear down and hear their cry, hear them in their affliction. He calls God the shepherd of Israel. Now, that either sounds really poetic to you or kind of weird. It depends on your level of knowledge with sheep. Right? But regardless of how you might view shepherds, Asaph means every ounce of it as a compliment, right? Shepherds are attentive. They're gentle, they're sacrificial for the good of 
their sheep. If, if Asaph did write Psalm 80, then that means that Psalm 23 was written about the same time. David calls the Lord his shepherd there. Might be the most quoted line in the Bible. It's a good title. It's a good nickname. The, the shepherd supplies all the needs. He leads them to safety. He leads them to flourishing. And, and then Jesus comes along several hundred years later and has the audacity to call himself the good shepherd, right? So regardless of whatever God's people see going on around them right now, the call, the call is for them to remember who God is. Remember who he is. As they cry out, they recite back to him his good and gracious character. Not because God has forgotten who he is, but because they're appealing to his obvious goodness. They're calling on his name. And then Asaph says something else. He says, he declares that God is enthroned upon the cherubim. If you've got a really good study Bible, you may, you may have like a, picture of of the ark of the covenant sitting right there close to to that little comment and there's a there's reasons for that on the on the top of the ark you've, you've seen pictures of it. you got these two angels we call them cherubs right and they've got their wings pointed up to a, a point in the middle right that's what the the ark of the covenant looks like and and so uh that that stuff on the top exodus is, we call it the mercy seat and exodus 25 22 tells us that god uh god tells the israelites in exodus 25 that 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 was the place where where he would make his presence manifest in the tabernacle he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. The place on earth where God's blazing holiness was supposed to be the most concentrated. He's there. Whenever God's presence was in the temple, you, you remember the, the, the smoke and all that kind of stuff? Supposedly he's there. Enthroned upon the cherubim. But there's a reason we call it the mercy seat. Not just some random name assigned to it. During Asaph's day, the blood of a spotless lamb would be sprinkled upon that spot. It was commanded action that was supposed to produce atonement for God's people. And so the congregation's appeal to God here, it's, it's laced with reminders of the great things that God has already done for them. Remember Psalm 78 earlier? God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this. Even as they cry out in their pain, the songwriter is weaving in the message of hope. Based on what? Based on his good character. In the middle of your pain, remember who your God is, he says. He's not just enthroned, and he's not just a shepherd. Who is he a shepherd of? Well, we've got four names listed here, right? Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. And this is one of the reasons that we think that Psalm 80 was written about the fall of the northern kingdom. This one's a little bit more uh, implied and not explicit, but it's one of the reasons that we have. The, the tribes that are all listed here, not that impressive. Like, like they're, they're just... By the, by the time period in history that this is being written, even if it's the earliest date that we can give it, nobody's really paying attention to these tribes. These tribes that are listed here, that 
Joseph and Benjamin were both Rachel's sons, if you don't know your Bible. Manasseh and Ephraim were grandsons through Joseph. And, and so what is Asaph doing here? I, well, the theory is that Asaph is separating out a portion of God's people from the rest. He's pulling out a subset of, of the larger whole. In other words, part of God's people are in trouble here, not all of God's people. On top of that, the, the tribes weren't very prominent during the, the unified kingdom period. King David wasn't from any of these tribes. It's from the tribe of Judah. That was the biggest tribe. Asaph, we're told, is a Levite in another place. And, and so that's where all the priests came from. No, nobody's really paying attention to Manasseh. Nobody's really paying attention to, to Benjamin. Nobody's really paying attention to, to these others. And so it seems, it seems like this psalm is written from the perspective of an outsider to the pain that's being experienced. They're not, they're not in the very middle of the pain, they're connected to the one who is in the middle of the pain. And maybe that's another thing that we can identify with, right? Not, not only have we walked through seasons of our own where, where we've experienced heartache, where we've experienced spiritual frustration, but like, haven't we all also walked through seasons where those we loved dearly were walking through it? And we wanted to fix, and we wanted to draw close, and the best thing we could do is remember who your God is. Remember who your God is. And so Asaph here, his, his song attempts to stir up the congregation to call upon the Lord. And for that Lord to save them with all of his might. But notice in verse 3 what the catalyst is that's used to produce that salvation. What does verse 3 say? Restore us, O God. Let your what? Let your face shine that we may be saved. So hear me, the answer to Israel's problem is not some giant military victory. And it's, and it's not some political resurgence or some economic boom. It's that they would see God's face. Church family, when, when you sit down and assess the fix for all of your greatest problems in the world, or, or, or maybe when they're separated from you, when you sit down and try to help those you love walk through and navigate through the fix for all their greatest problems in the world, and uh, uh, is that the fix that you dream of? Is that your prayer for them? Is that what you're begging for them? When you, when you find yourself in the middle of the dark night and it seems like God is ignoring your prayer, do you merely want him to make the problems go away or do you desperately long for him to show you his face? Because those, those are different prayers. Those are very different prayers. This idea of God's face shining on you, it harkens back to the days of Aaron, right? Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. Asaph here, he wants something bigger and deeper and more life-giving for those walking in pain right now than just merely escaping that pain. He wants them to experience the light of his glory and grace. That word, restore, it carries the idea of being picked up and turned around to be set on the right path. 
Think of a little kid running wrong, running towards danger. Just swoop him up, spin him around, and turn him loose. You ever, you ever seen something so spectacular that it changed the way you viewed the world? It changed the way you thought about things and the way you lived. Caused you to do a 180. You think God's face has the ability to do that? It's a good song to sing. But the best songs out there always draw you deeper in with the second verse. And so look at, that starts out in verse 4. Let's take a look. Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. So most people can, I think, latch on pretty quickly to, uh, with the idea of a, of a holy God being angry or angered by people's unrighteousness and sin. Like, like I know that sounds weird, but I, I really think that that's my theory for the way people's minds work. So like, like, we might not like the idea of, of God uh, with a God who's angry at us. People recoil from that idea, but we are very, very slow to let go of the idea that, that there's a God out there who has righteous indignation over murderers and rapists and people who kick puppies, right? Like, like we, we, we might not like that there's a God of anger at us, but we will never let go of a God who's angry at somebody else. All right? When we see terror, when we see evil, when we see unrighteousness and sin, we will latch quickly on a God who is just in those moments. But even while we might give reluctant mental assent to those things, Asaph here, he, he doesn't ask how long God will be angry with his people's transgressions. What does he say? He asked how long God would be angry with his people's prayer, their religious actions, things that they've actually been commanded to do by God. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, I think we see a God who shows himself to have a very short fuse with those who would try to play religious games. He doesn't have any patience at all for that. Those who might be quick to honor him with their lips when their hearts are far from him. He's not impressed with those games. He's not fooled by those games. And, and Jesus actually warns against exactly that in Matthew 7, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and do that in your name? And the idea there, they, they busied themselves with religious action that they thought had earned them some kind of place with Jesus, some kind of status with him, some, some kind of standing with, with him. But, but how does Jesus respond to that? Those of you who know the story, he says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. He calls them workers of lawlessness. To, to, to Jesus, re- religious action void of actual relationship is the same thing as lawlessness. It's not just a little shy of the mark. It's completely deserving of his righteous wrath. In Psalm 80, in Psalm 80, Asaph calls the congregation to ask a very, very honest and revealing question. Lord, how long will you be angry with our, with our religious hypocrisy? How, how long are you going to be 
angry with us over that? Will there, will there ever come a day when you, you're kind enough to overlook our apathy and restore us by your namesake? The reason their tears are their bread, the reason they are an object of contention for their neighbors, we need to see this morning that it's not because their en- enemies had a bigger army than them, and it's not because, because they held more resources than them. It's because the people called God's people failed to take God seriously. That's the source of the problem. They treated him like some kind of inanimate talisman that they could corner into continuing to bless them so long as that they you know, just proceeded to check the boxes off correctly. I mean, how can he ever be concerned with anything more than that, right? Don't you know my situation? I got, I, I got, I got reasons for this. I'm tied down to this or that or whatever. And so Asaph's call here, it, it cuts through all the religious games that people try to play. Whether we're talking about 3,000 years ago or we're talking about our own day and age, the call is to fully reckon with the reality that righteousness and empty religious action are not the same thing. They're galaxies apart. One of them is a marker for right relationship with the Holy God, and the other one is a lawlessness that's fully deserving of His wrath. And so I think a massive question needs to be answered this morning. How in the world do you move from one to the other? Right? How do you shift from religious gamesmanship to right relationship? Surely there's a a pathway from one to the other, right? So how do you get there? Well, it's a pretty good time for our song to have a course. We've already sung it once. Let's look at it again in verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Hey, our song has a refrain. Every modern worship leader's dream, right? They've been trying to add choruses to Psalms for years. Psalm 80 already gave them one. Back in, uh, notice though that the course is different from the first time around. Back in verse 3, Asaph said, restore us, O God. Here he adds some flair though. What does he say? Restore us, O God of hosts. So it's more of a chorus B for those of you who are more musically inclined. Uh, so, so what's this host business? What's that about? Is, is God putting together some kind of grand dinner party? Does he have to let the state know that he's doing it? Is that what's going on? Now, whenever the Bible talks about a host, it's talking about armies, right? It's talking about armies. Um, a lot of times the, it'll, it'll specify that by adding the word heavenly with it. And so we see that in the Christmas story, right? The heavenly host. It's talking about an army of angels, God reigns and rules over a heavenly army. In other words, his commands are infinitely enforceable. It's it's not a struggle for him to pull off what he's wanting to do. Nobody's waiting around and wondering if, if God's going to be able to accomplish what he's promised to accomplish. Have you seen his army? It's not going to be a struggle. He's got it. The NIV usually translates the word host as almighty. In other words, God does whatever God pleases to do. Full stop. He doesn't have to run it through a committee. Doesn't have to get his board's approval. Doesn't take it to a democratic vote in heaven. Whatever God wants to do, God does. Full stop. 
But notice that the back end of the course hasn't changed. It's the same. We've, we've grown in our understanding of who we're singing to, but, but our hope for salvation hasn't shifted. It's, it's unchanged. It's the same. So what does Asaph say? Let your face shine upon us. The answer to how do we move or how do we shift from religious gamesmanship to right relationship, the answer is that we have a genuine interaction with this holy and almighty God. Those of you who know your Bibles well, right, you're probably immediately thinking of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, right? He finds himself in the heavenly throne room in a, in a dream or whatever that is for him. Isaiah thought that he was something awesome. Isaiah, when he compared himself with his neighbors, thought he was a pretty big deal. And then all of a sudden he finds himself in the throne room of he who is actually holy and he realizes otherwise. The very instant that God gives him a taste of that which is actually holy, Isaiah hits the deck. He bottoms out. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of the Almighty. He finds himself in the presence of the God of hosts, and he is made immediately aware that games are not going to be good enough. The goalposts don't go where Isaiah thinks they go. They go where God Almighty puts them. His sin is revealed for exactly what it is, and he cries out, woe is me. He wishes he were a dead man. You, you want to kill off hypocrisy in your own heart and life? That'll do it. That'll do it. Start begging God to give you a tiny glimpse of who he really is. It'll change you. It'll forever change you. Well, that, that sounds really good, but I mean that really only kind of kills off the hypocrisy. We, we need something better than neutral here. I, I mean, recognizing sin is important, but how how is our sin dealt with and right relationship established? Isn't that what we're aiming for? We don't we don't just want to understand how sinful we are. We we need right relationship. So so how how does that happen? Great question. Just like Isaiah needed God to deal with his sin with a coal from the altar, our boy Asaph has a third verse here. Starts in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed upon it. So, so who is the vine in this little analogy, right? It, it makes pretty clear sense. It's, it's Israel. And so it's obviously Israel. God led them by his grace out of the land of Egypt and he established them in the promised land, right? He, he, he cleared the ground for him. He, he drove out the nations. He blessed that ground and they, they grew in that land. They flourished in that land. I mean, if we think that this is being written during the unified kingdom, things are going pretty well for them. Right? Things are going very, very well for God's people during this time period. And so we have this incredibly poetic, or, um, Israel filled the land. And so uh, it's stretched out from the sea to the river, and we think that that river it's talking about there is the Euphrates. Right? And so that's probably what that's, that, that's saying. And so Israel kind of just spread itself out in, in the promised land. And, and so then we've also got this next layer here of, of the vine providing shade to mountains and to cedars. You ever seen a vine big enough to provide shade to a mountain? It's a really big vine, right? 
It's a really, really tall vine. Most commentators see, see that reference as, as the Gentile nations and the ever-expanding reach of the Israel borders. So as Israel began to spread out, the flourishing of Israel actually provided for the flourishing of everybody else. And then things turn south, though, in verse 12. Walls are broken down. Passers-by pluck away at the fruit. This is another reason why we're pretty sure that this psalm is about the Assyrian invasion. The similarities between this and Isaiah chapter 5 are astounding. And they're just absolutely massive. There in Isaiah 5, God calls his people a vineyard. And then when they are adulterous, he promises to remove the wall, to remove the hedge of protection around them and allow wild animals to begin picking them off. Isaiah was written a couple of couple hundred years after Asaph lived. And so this is either another reason for the debate over authorship or it's a really good reason to question Asaph's involvement. But, I mean, whoever the author is, obviously he and Isaiah are talking to each other, right? The only problem with that theory, though, is that it doesn't really make any attempt at all to account for the God who's sovereign over both authors. And so it's possible, it's totally possible that this proves that somebody other than the original OG Asaph authored this psalm, but it's also possible and incredibly consistent with Old Testament prophecy to say that God carried Asaph along to write about something that was way off in the future and to do so in order that God's people would be prepared and it would prove God's resolve to fulfill his promises for them. But either way, Israel, Israel finds itself in a lot of trouble right now, right? Things are going really, really bad. They're reeling under the consequences of their sin. And so we asked a question a while ago about how that sin can be dealt with. And so we get to see that spelled out starting in verse 14. It says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Verse 16, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So it doesn't matter what era of redemptive history we're talking about. The answer to closing the gap between God and man is not now, nor has it ever been for us to drum up some kind of action to absolve our sins. No matter where you want to point to in the Bible, that's the wrong answer. It is not our ability to appease God in this way or appease God in that way, to, to figure out the pathway to, to better or deeper righteousness here, there, or anywhere else. The answer to closing the gap between God and man is for a good and gracious God to step in and close the gap himself. Always. Period. God closes the gap himself. He shows off his faithfulness. Turn again, O Lord God of hosts, Asaph says. Do what you've done so many 
times. Show yourself to be good. In spite of our sin, reveal your mercy. Reveal your loving kindness. And then in verse 19, we see the chorus one last time, but again, it takes another step, right? Not just God of hosts, but Lord God of hosts. Uh, See the caps there? The name, the covenant name that God gave to his people. Yes, God is almighty. Yes, he is high and lifted up, holy and exalted in the heavens. Those are things that we will forever celebrate about him but he is not only those things he is not merely those things he is also the God who condescended he's the God who came near and joyfully made himself known he said here I am know me he is the God who despite our sin joined himself lovingly and graciously to a sinful people how did he do that (laughs) Glad you asked. Let's talk about it. What was only a shadow on the horizon for Asaph is now a mystery being fully revealed in our day. God continued to stoop low. He came even further down. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He, he, he put on a face that even fallen, sinful hearts could see and experience. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. So now as the the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this morning to, to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. To trust Him and Him alone for salvation. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. If, if you're here and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you, listen, you, you don't need me, but I'd love to be helpful for you. He wants to give you Himself with, without me, but I'd love to help you walk and make sense of what that response of faith looks like. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If you're in the room here, I'll be standing down front if you want somebody to talk to you about that. If you're watching us online right now, you can use the comment uh, link in, in the video description and I would love to try to, to get back to you and help you make sense of that response of faith. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, I mean, what's our response, right? We say it every week. But it's true every week. It's the same as it always is whenever we hear God's word. We repent of sin and we lean into his goodness. Is it possible? Is it possible that despite your good start, you've slipped into the rut of playing spiritual games? How do you think that'll go? What's the pathway out of that? We beg to, to catch a glimpse of him, right? That's the pathway. And when we see him, we are changed by him. Oh, that we would all hit the deck like Isaiah did. It's a scary moment, but it'd be a good moment. He is good. He was quick to call for the coal from the altar. He will also be quick to have regard for his vine. So let us see clearly. Let us have a right evaluation of ourselves and our sin and let us beg God to show us his face that we may be saved. Whoever you are, 
however God is calling you to respond this morning. Let's do that together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 80. I know we can't handle all of it. But like Moses, would you let us see a bit of your glory? Whatever you allow us to experience will forever change us, I'm sure. And I know in my own heart and life, it's, it's the moments where I take my eyes off of you and I begin to mess things up pretty quickly. Capture my attention. Show me that which this world could never match. Change our church by it. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Call call people into your kingdom this morning. May they see you. In Jesus' name we pray.